Raindrops on roses and whiskers on kittens Bright copper kettles and warm woolen mittens Brown paper packages tied up with strings These are a few of my favorite things Hello and welcome to Weekly Monotony, the official podcast of the entertainment blog, DailyMonotony.com. With this week, we're recapping this summer's 2009's best of the best of the best, with honors. I'm, of course, Dustin England, and I might give you five bucks if you can tell me where that quote is from. And I might not. <laughs> if I knew, I'd claim it, but I don't, so I won't. Failure, failure. That's cool. Uh, I live in that. I live in that spot. Well, that works. That works. That is, of course, our recurring guest, Todd Anglin. Weekly here to claim failure as my territory. Thank you very much, Mr. Anglin. We we need we need someone on this show to to fail constantly, so we can all look better by contrast. I try my hardest. <laughs> <laughs> and I happen to know where the quote is from, but in interest of preserving the current downturn of the economy, lest I should make any particular presidential administration look good or bad, I will refrain from releasing that information and remain Mr. Scott Johnsgard. That sounds like you don't know the quote. Just going to say. Just going to put it out there. Yeah, I, that's wrong. I, he Doss was sitting in, throw down in, the in an egg <laughs> <the> podcast. <laughs> Just saying. Need to spice things up a bit. Add some more tension in there. All right, well, while they pretend to know what that quote is and look it up on IMDb, we're going to go <laughs> go ahead and get into what we've been <laughs> watching this week. Uh, Mr. Johnsgard, I know you've still been going through some quality television and some Netflix stuff. What have you been watching this week? So this week is naval theme, following my World War II sort of post-inglorious bastard stint. And so first off is a... PBS documentary series called Carrier from 2008. Hmm. I'd never heard of this before until I went to Netflix, found all the documentaries available for instant watch, and sorted them by what they thought I would like the most. And this one came out on top. <laughs> we think you'd <laughs> like the Navy. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, here's a recruitment form in the office for your local <laughs> Navy recruitment <laughs> <laughs> no, the government's not involved in this at all. Let's see how Netflix works now. <laughs> it explains why their rates are so affordable. <laughs> cool. So the carrier, what's 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 it about? Yeah. So carrier, uh, it's it's a ten-hour series, ten episodes of about an hour apiece. Um, it is a sort of I, I would call it a traditional interview documentary style. There's no narration, and there's not really a sense of you know commentary by the filmmakers they basically just went on board the uss stennis which is the largest aircraft carrier in the world hmm. or the nimitz excuse the me nimitz, not the yeah. stennis yeah. <laughs> i'm like mixing up my real and red alert two boats reporting. acknowledged and uh the, on a deployment to the gulf to support operation iraqi freedom and uh, they basically just interview a large number of people ranging from the captain ship, like, you know, you know, ordinary sailors who, in, like, army terms, you know, would hold the rank of private, basically. Um, and basically just sort of hone in on a number of interesting individuals and follow what it's like for them to live on the boat, what happens to them in the course of life in the Navy, what happens to, you know, their family back at home, those sorts of things. 
Sounds cool. Uh, is it? Um, is it? So, I mean, as much as I do love a good PBS documentary, and I do, I'm not saying that facetiously. <laughs> uh, every once in a while, they can be a little public television, <laughs> a little, a little NPR on a bad day in the middle of a Saturday. Uh, <laughs> what's 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 your general opinion of the uh, the I guess the general excitability of this or, or how how would normal people uh, react to this is this something that uh, that you know history army junkies would just enjoy or do you think this is something that uh, any Joe Blow off the street might well, enjoy to be honest I don't know if your average army history junkie would really like it that much because there's really not a whole lot of you know, military history going on here. This really is a sort of cultural survey. I mean, there's a one point where they describe the aircraft carrier as being like a giant floating high school. Hmm. In the sense that you, like, any impressions you may have from watching military movies of what it might be like to be on a modern aircraft carrier, according to this documentary, are probably completely misfounded. In that, you know, any sense you may have of what it was like to be in the Navy, you know, in World War II probably is completely different from what is on display here. So really, in a sense, it's most interesting culturally or, or maybe sociologically. Huh. So you mean they don't actually punt footballs off the front of the aircraft carrier? <laughs> <laughs> no, but there's a scene where, like, some officer gets a, like, heavy machine gun out of the armory and just, like, fires it across, like over the side of the ship into the water. <laughs> like, like fires it into a crowd of people. <laughs> like sometimes I've on actually, a, on I naval ship, it gets I've actually seen a few episodes of this on PBS, um, and I actually found it pretty enjoyable, the few episodes I saw on PBS. So I think there is some, for a documentary, for me I found it most fascinating just to see more of a modern uh, U.S. atomic aircraft carrier. I mean, I think if you have any interest, especially if you're a fan of video games where you see these things represented in art, just to see the, the scale and the technology that's in the military's basically flagship uh, naval vessels, for me, I find it just immensely intriguing at that level because you get to just see what it's really like in these ships, what the corridors are like, you know, what the daily life is like on these massive, massive ships. Uh, probably the biggest ships in naval history. And, and for that alone, I found at least several of the episodes interesting. Um, so I would, you know, having seen a few of these as well, I would definitely say it's worth checking out, um, especially if you have any remote interest in military technology. Cool. And this is a Netflix Instant Watch? Yes, it is. Cool. All right. For so maximum easy freeness. <laughs> sounds, like, sounds like I recommend on PBS documentary series The Carrier. Uh, what else? And then, then for something a little bit more fantastical, um, the 1981 German classic Das Boot. Ah, uh, Das Boot. <laughs> Boot. It's spelled B-O-T. <laughs> Therefore, it's Das Boot. <laughs> um, das Boot. <laughs> I'll just go ahead and throw that out there to keep my failure. As an American, up. I am an authority on <laughs> pronouncing <laughs> pronouncing all foreign all languages. Foreign languages. <laughs> all right, das Boot. Right, it, then. Yeah. Uh, it, well, you know, uh, Das Boot has a reputation as being probably the greatest submarine film of all time. Um, <laughs> I know. I don't know how appreciated it is, sort of by people, you know, closer to generation. Because um, frankly, I, a lot of people I know haven't seen it, probably just because most modern American audiences are petrified of subtitles. 
or see the better sub movie with a certain Scottish actor. Yeah. So <laughs> rhymes with Ed uh, over. Yeah. Sub movies ending in October. Yeah. Your mom, Trebek. So, I mean, as regards that film, or, or you know, maybe you five seven one or whatever the other one or K-9- crimson tide or what have K-19, you the widowmaker crimson tide yeah um it those films really in my mind sort of pale in comparison to dos boat maybe not you know you could argue back and forth about historical accuracy and those sorts of things but just the sense of what it's like to be stuck in a tiny little death trap well i mean and also just you know the fact that um it wasn't totally cool to be in the german military when they were at the end of the war, when they were obviously basically getting screwed. And, you know, Dust Boat has a pretty fantastically depressing ending, you know, without giving it away. Um, which, you know, after three and a half hours, you really sort of want to get into. I mean, it's so. it's definitely a renowned film. I mean, anytime you hear people talk about famous war films, Dust Boat is one that comes up. So uh, I, I actually, I'm kind of sad to say that I've never seen it, but it's definitely something I've always had on sort of my my list of like shame films from the past to see so uh uh definitely definitely sounds like it's something worth seeing it's always been one of those things where it just it looks really long it looks a little a little too serious and you really have to be in a certain mood to to watch films like that and it's that's actually one of the moods i find myself a hard time getting into one of those moods to to actually pick up and see that film even if it's freely available to watch so uh but uh, it, so- it sounds like it's a good film. I'll see it eventually, <laughs> I imagine. <laughs> cool. Uh, anything else? Uh, you don't have to limit my intake. <laughs> okay. Sounds good. Uh, Todd, what about you? Been watching anything? Any new stuff you want to talk about? Uh, there's one thing on the TV front. I'll, I'll, I'll limit it to that this week. Uh, I will mention that this week was the release week of Batman Arcane Asylum, Ar- um, which... Arkham Asylum. Arcane? Arkham. Arkham Asylum, excuse me. <laughs> uh, doesn't matter. That's, I'm the failure. I can say whatever I want. That's true. Uh, we'll, we'll just let you go <laughs> and then, then like release something on. at the end. Is let, like... let everybody at home just cringe saying, no, Arkham Asylum, Arkham Asylum! <laughs> so I can say Arcane Asylum this whole episode. Please show notes like, the following things were misstated by Mr. Todd Ng. <laughs> Intentionally, though, um, <laughs> I wish. So, the the new Batman game. Let's keep it easy. Yes. <laughs> um, it, it's out this week, and I've got the the demo, and I want to play it before I pull the trigger on spending full money on a real game. Everything I'm hearing is the best IP uh, video game or best comic licensed IP video game in a long time. So I'm really interested to, to dive into it and play with it. I don't have a review to bring for that, but I just wanted to put it out there and make sure people are aware of the release and at least casually aware. I'm sure people are at this point, but uh, I, I hope to play it soon and bring more opinion, especially from my failure casual gamer perspective. Um, but have you guys played it yet? Do you guys have any takes on that game yet? So I actually did pick this up and started playing this this weekend. And uh, so, so first off, it's been getting great critical success. I mean, there's a lot of people who have gone off and said this is the best game of 2009 so far, this is the best licensed game ever made. I'm not sure if I would go that far. I'm only about, I think, 15% of the way through the game, according to the little progress meter. But uh, I will say I am quite surprised at just how fully fleshed out this world is. 
So this is this is a Batman game, but it's not based on any movie. It's not based on any of the recent films or even the old films. It's based on just the Batman universe and mythos. So it takes sort of the best stuff from the animated series, which is, to to me, one of the best cartoons ever made. Uh, it takes some of the good, some you know, g- really great deep Batman stuff from the comic books. It really does grab from all that mythos and makes something really, like a universe that's completely fleshed out. And the whole the whole concept of the game is. You're Batman, you're taking the Joker in to Arkham Asylum, which is, of course, the sort of the prison slash loony bin where all the the uh, the arch enemies of Batman live. And, of course, as soon as you get in there, the Joker escapes and co- basically takes over the entire asylum, and now you're sort of trapped in the Joker's funhouse. And, uh, but, I mean, beyond that, it's it really is a spectacular game. They do a great job of taking what's best about Batman and sort of carving that up into different kind of gameplay elements. Uh, it plays basically like an open-world game. You can sort of go wherever you want in this huge campus of Arkham Asylum. So it's not narrow corridor fighting stuff. They sort of let you roam free. And uh, like I said, it breaks it down into to very Batman-y things. So there are moments of sort of uh, beat-em-up stuff where you can play it like a button masher or you can play it like a, a slightly more skilled fighter game, almost like you would have in a game like Assassin's Creed where you sort of have to time your hits and sort of build up combos to do these astonishing takedowns. And the animation for that stuff is amazing. It's probably some of the best fighting animation I've ever seen. That's one of the moments, but they also break it up into this thing where it's kind of like a tactical fighting uh, game. So so some of the guys you fight are just, you know, unarmed guys, or they have knives, and you can beat them up. The other guys have guns, and of course Batman never uses a gun, and Batman is mortal and can be shot and killed. So they, they'll basically put you into this room, and then they'll introduce four or five guys into this room, and you have to slowly choose how to use stealth and tactics to take these guys out and make sure you don't get shot because as soon as these guys see you they'll shoot you and kill you uh but it's just so incredibly fun because you can sort of use your uh your little grappling hook and get up into the rafters and hang on these gargoyles and kind of walk around the room on the top and then do things like swoop down grab a guy tie him up and then like swoop back up and you slowly you know cause the uh, henchmen to get more and more frightened and uh, use that to your advantage as you take them down I mean, so that's that's another element. There's detective elements where you're going through and you, you're doing the classic sort of like Batman forensics, chemistry, detective work. There's exploration. There, there are puzzles. It's it's really surprising at how good they've made this game at just being very diverse and not repetitive. Which you can imagine as a as a game where sort of the beat 'em up aspect is sort of the what's been put in the sort of starring role that that could be you know it can get very repetitive and any beat 'em up game gets very repetitive quickly. This game does a great job of just pacing things well, of making things diverse, and just really building out the Batman universe and fleshing out this this uh, this environment you're in with so much stuff to explore and so much personality and so much uh, look and feel. So uh, so far, I'm I'm really enjoying this game. Uh, I'm not sure. If so I- so what's your hesitation then? Because I mean, you you said you wouldn't give it as much praise as the other uh, reviews perhaps have, or calling it best sure. licensed title or best game of the year. So clearly, there's something you think may I not know. be I think, up to. I think there's. Par. I think calling this like again, I've only paid, I've played very short amount into this game, only about ten percent or fifteen percent, and I mean there are some bits. I actually have found the the fighting to be a little difficult sometimes, and I find myself sort of getting into button mashing sometimes, and that can be a little, I can be you know. I'm not. I don't like button mashing. I like games where you can sort of think things out a bit more. And there does seem to be a bit of a heavier, a heavier push toward this this combat, which is t- 
to me again comes a little button mashy and it's I think a bit more geared to people who like fighting style games. Uh so that's one of my gripes about it. Uh and also like I don't know, like I would call games like the Chronicles of Riddick or Kotor or other things that have you know used uh, classic licenses like like you know Star Wars and other stuff like that. I think there are better games that have been made so far. And while I think this is a great game so far, it's uh, I'm not sure if it's wowed me as say like Shadow Complex did. Like Shadow Complex was hard to step away from, but I find myself having a pretty easy time stepping away from Batman Arkham Asylum. But that's not saying I don't like it. I'm so <laughs> so worth the sixty bucks or play the demo and then decide. I definitely say play the demo. See if see if you like some of the stuff you see in the demo. Uh, I would definitely say the game is much more story driven than the demo gives you. But uh, the demo does give you a good feeling of sort of the some of the uh, I guess the fighting elements of the game. And if if you find that fun, if you find it uh, easy enough to play through, then yeah, definitely pick up the game. Cool. I, I definitely think it's, well, it's going to be. This is going to be one of the best games of this year. I'm just not sure I would go out, you know, having only played 15 percent, say, "Oh yeah, this is the best licensed game ever made." So. <laughs> okay. Well, I'll definitely be going to play more of it, at least the demo, and then if I if I enjoy the demo, laying down the change for the the full version. But uh, certainly, it's out there. It's a big game, probably one of the biggest games in, for now until we get into the the holiday stretch uh, when we get Modern Warfare and and Assassin's Creed 2 and some of the other big titles that have survived the Q1 push, sure. but nonetheless, out there coming up. Uh, in the TV land, though, where I was originally going to go, the, the one new TV show I've started watching that I haven't mentioned yet here is Project Runway. And Project Runway, for those of you who don't know, was really the original uh, reality, quote-unquote, TV contest show that put professionals on camera doing what they do well. It, and, and I say that because it was actually the inspiration for Top Chef, right, right. a show that we've mentioned a number of times <laughs> on this podcast. In fact, uh, Top Chef, which was originally on Bravo, which this year – or no, it, it still is on Bravo. So on Bravo, yeah. Um, Project Runway was originally <laughs> on Bravo. It this year has found itself on Life of all places, a range huh. move. Interesting, uh, yeah. And apparently there were a lot, of, a, a lot of politics involved, and NBC wanted to sell the show, and they were – I mean, I don't the, – the politics got involved, and the same show ended up on a different network, but it's still the same show. It's, it's not changed in its format at all. But the uh, if you go back in the history of Top Chef, a show that I know a lot of uh, – I know you all like and a lot of people probably like listening, uh, when they tried to recruit Tom Colicchio, the, the judge, the head judge for Top Chef, and the guy who really – gave Top Chef the credibility it needed early on to be more than just a reality show, they actually sent him several seasons of Project Runway. Right, right. And they showed him Project Runway, and they showed him what Bravo could do in terms of making a reality show that wasn't just another reality show. It was a show that put professionals uh, on camera doing what they do best, you know, whatever their actual talent is. Right. And that's actually how they recruited and got Tom Clickio hooked and agreed to come on and do Top Chef. He said that it was those uh, – he originally had dismissed the request to do a reality show several times. He said, no, I'm not interested. I don't want to get in that. But when they showed him what they'd done with Project Runway, he said, well, you know, I see what you've done with Project Runway. I like it. I'll come do Top Chef. So there's this really close relationship between these two shows. Uh, Project Runway being, of course, the original, and it, unlike Top Chef, takes essentially – uh, up-and-coming fashion designers and pits them through the same kind of weekly competition of uh, build or not building uh, creating some 
outfit, I guess. There's no sure. really better way to say it, to, to put it simply. And then at the end of the challenge, they have to have their models go do a runway show for a judging panel of relatively well-respected judges. Michael Kors is a very uh, famous fashion designer, especially for, for women's clothing. Uh, Nina Garcia is a, a big editor for a fashion magazine. But it essentially opened up the world of fashion design and really opened up the world of legitimate reality TV that puts professionals on screen doing what they do. So sure. needless to say, I find it kind of interesting for that reason. It has started up in a season here. I think it started last week. And like I said before, this season it's now on Lifetime instead of Bravo uh, because NBC sold it. So it's actually a little bit late out of the gates. They actually shot this a long time ago, and then it got – tied up in limbo while the networks tried to figure out what who was going to air it and you know you know who's going to pay who to run it on TV so it's a little bit later out of the gates than it should be i think it was supposed to be a bit of a summer show but it got pushed straight into the fall season because of the the network battling but it's out now i definitely think if you're a fan of top chef this is worth adding to your fall DVR lineup more so than maybe some of the other uh, new scripted shows coming out but uh, <laughs> I'll just put it out there. If you're a fan of Top Chef, definitely at least give Project Runway a try, even if you don't think fashion is your thing. Uh, you may, in fact, find yourself enjoying it. Uh, Heidi Klum is another one of the judges, and so if you if you have any idea of who Heidi Klum is or you want uh, <laughs> more judging eye candy than you from Top Chef, I guess that's out there too. <laughs> Uh, just, to, just to appeal to the base audience, the base senses of the audience. No, that's, that's totally cool, and and I do know the story, the sort of origin stuff of Top Chef from Project One Runway. So, uh, yeah, always would give that a shout out to, to check out as quality reality te television, not the, <laughs> the crap they put on the network television. So, which begs the question. I mean, Lifetime of all places. I mean, to me, Lifetime is like the the female creepy movie network. Yeah. Um, so it's really odd for me that this show ended up there. I'm a little disappointed that NBC, because NBC owns Bravo, so I'm surprised that they would sell this off to some obscure network like Lifetime. I'm not sure who owns Lifetime, if anybody. Um, I'm a little surprised that they haven't found a way to bring these really popular cable reality shows to... like Top Chef, like uh, like Project Runway, yeah, to the broadcast. That's a good point. I mean, uh, you'd think stuff... I mean, like Top Chef got phenomenal ratings for for a show last in its last season and I'm kind of surprised that there weren't people you know sort of sniffing around looking to pick up that license for network because it seems like it would do pretty well in in a primetime I mean, slot. If, if biggest loser can survive on network if yeah. Hell's <laughs> Kitchen can survive on network yeah, are point. you telling me that that we can't bring these shows when those shows can can get season after season? I I wonder uh, I wonder for Top Chef whether it isn't it isn't Bravo just gave a better offer and they're you know they they're good friends uh they set things up for them better so maybe that's the reason but uh yeah project nbc owns bravo so i mean nbc pretty much could call the shot on that yeah uh, uh, nbc <laughs> what can you say <laughs> nbc universal and not I'm always make the smartest it, choices <laughs> yeah i i wish the networks would em embrace more intelligent programming like these shows uh, and put them in instead of just sort of shutting them down the cable network stack and making them more obscure give them sure. some more time in the spotlight instead of airing more crap reality TV like they do time after time. Yeah, yeah, you have to wonder. But I will cage that by saying with... I, I was going to say, I'm going to quickly cage that by saying when we when we start talking about the, uh, the top movies of the summer, and as I was reviewing the movies that grossed the most money, <laughs> maybe the studios have uh, 
more of just maybe it's a sense of reality. Maybe it's than, a, re- than we a reflection on on we as a society. <laughs> yeah, maybe they just know what makes money, and it's sad what it does. But anyway, cool. Uh, that's all I've got though. TV and a game I wish I could play. Awesome. Uh, so for stuff that I've been consuming in the media world, uh, definitely Arkham Asylum. Looking forward to completing that. Uh, uh, looks like it's going to be a great game. I picked up two films off of uh, Netflix. One of them is a film that was recommended to me uh, a while back. It's a 2006 independent film called Special. Uh, it's an interesting, quirky little independent film. Of course, it's independent, so it has to be quirky. Uh, it's basically about this guy who enrolls in a a uh, drug testing program for a new antidepressant. And once he takes it, it reacts with his brain, and suddenly he thinks he's starting to develop superpowers. Uh, it's So we actually, it's sort of interesting the way they play this is... Uh, every once in a while, we see things from the guy's perspective, and we see him doing things like like floating and walking through walls and like reading people's minds. And then every once in a while, we see things from sort of the other perspective, where like rather than walking through a wall, he just like slams into the wall and stuff like that. So they kind of play off this this humorous concept of you know what if a guy thought he had superpowers and started wanted to become a superhero, even though he was basically just hallucinating everything. So that concept sounds like sounds like a really funny concept, which, which is why I wanted to see it. Uh, in the end, though, this film ends up being far more of a, uh, I guess, touching story on what it means to be a sort of a guy who doesn't feel like he he fits out, or doesn't feel like he is special. Basically, feels like he's you know he does something, has a, a dull drum job, and he uh, you know longs to be important, but kind of realizes that most people in the world just aren't that important, and so because of that this 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 movie actually takes on a pretty sad and somber note and by the end of the film it's uh while it does sort of have a heartwarming feel to the end it ends up being far more somber of a film than i thought it was going to be uh it's still a good film i i definitely say it's a touching perspective on on this concept of you know what most people feel in their life at one point or or another which is that they're just not important and uh to me it actually it grabs those human emotions really well uh and it puts a funny little twist on it with this concept of uh, the guy who thinks he has superpowers. But, uh, uh, yeah, I would definitely say not not a film you want to watch if you, you know, want to laugh, but uh, definitely a great film if you're kind of feeling blue and you want to sort of, sort of, I guess, convene with that that sensibility and, and have, be a little up, uplifted in the end. So, so special, 2006. Do you feel guilty for laughing at him by the end of the movie? I you know I actually didn't find that that I laughed too much like there's there's one pretty hilarious moment where where he thinks he can walk through walls and uh he he goes into the police station to try to recruit himself out to the police uh to be a superhero and he's like it's like I need to show you something all right now watch what I can do and then we see things from the police perspective and he just like takes off towards this wall and smacks into the wall and I I <laughs> I laughed at that. That was pretty funny. But most of the other times, it's I was actually just kind of sad for the guy because you know he does the the main actor uh, who I think is no I don't don't have his name written down here. Uh, oh wait a second here's uh, Michael Rappaport is the main actor and he does just a great job of playing this you know kind of sad on down on his luck guy who you just you long for like his superpowers to be real and you sort of long for the the uh delusion that he's that he's feeling to be real but uh 
So it actually makes it really hard to laugh at him because you do really feel a lot of sympathy for this character. But uh, uh, definitely an interesting film. It's Netflix Instant Watch, uh, something something to check out if you're in the proper mood. Uh, the other film I watched was in response to a news story I'm going to mention in just a little bit. But that film was uh, The 13th Warrior. as a 1999 film based on a Michael Crichton novel called Eaters of the Dead starring Antonio Banderas. And this is basically... Uh, it's a it's a kind of historical fiction approach to the uh, Nordic Grendel Beowulf myth, where basically you have uh, only in this case you have this group of Vikings who go to fight this evil force that is attacking this town, and they eventually go and attack the evil force. Uh, I it, it this film is it's, it's such a great like light action film, like like Friday night. Pizza and a beer with some friends. This is one of the best films to watch. It's one of those great dude films that you can really get into because it's basically a bunch of huge macho Viking guys kicking ass the entire time with swords and getting drunk and doing Viking stuff. Like to me, that's that, that's like the perfect like guys night out sort of movie. Uh, so yeah, I'm, it's it's not a great film. <laughs> it's I don't think anyone <laughs> can say this is you know like this is like a gladiator style action film this is definitely not as deep but it's just a really fun film so if, if you're looking for uh really good light like awesome action entertainment uh this is this is about as t- testosterone filled as the film gets so 13th warrior great film on par with predator uh, uh different vein than predator predator definitely has the the campy asianness to it this definitely just has much more of a you know testosterone pumping large nordic men chopping off people's heads totally. so more like conan yeah. i actually just finished adding that to my uh i digitized uh, apple tv collection i oh, got great. the dvd from years and years ago um and it's a, it's a good movie i mean it's definitely if you like action uh if you like antonio banderas who's the lead character in it um it, it, it's pretty short it's 103 minutes so it's not you know a super long epic movie but the action is there you get to the get to the point quickly there's a little suspense i enjoyed it and so i think it's definitely one worth checking out if you've never seen it but yeah 13th warrior is a really really cool film uh which actually leads me uh out of the what we've been watching series and segues into news stories and one of the first news stories i want to talk about is something that i've actually gotten pretty excited about uh, that is, uh, Spielberg has been uh, basically announced that he's trying to get the rights to produce a film to the last book that Michael Crichton wrote before he passed away, uh, which he passed away, I think, earlier this year. Uh, and it's a film called Pirate Latitudes, and it's Spielberg doing a Crichton film, which, if you remember, uh, Jurassic Park, The Lost World, both Spielberg films that Michael Crichton wrote in collaborations uh, with Michael Crichton, so this has actually sort of excited me. Uh, I'm a huge, huge Michael Crichton fan. Uh, I wrote up a, a nice little piece on him after he passed away, and and how he sort of influenced me both in, uh, you know, my enjoyment of written fiction, my enjoyment in, of science fiction, my enjoyment of movies. I um, mean, he really did kind of build up my base as a young person uh, to enjoying this entire genre, and. You know, I'm super excited both to read the Crichton book, which is uh, they're actually going to be publishing it this November, and and also excited to see that Spielberg is looking at doing a another adaptation of a Crichton novel. Uh, what are your guys' thoughts on, I guess, 
on this particular story and I guess previous Spielberg Crichton collaborations? Uh, I don't know much about the story, the new story that's being done, but I've loved in the past Crichton uh, Spielberg combinations, and I can only hope that Spielberg can actually come some of the the latest challenges of not overusing CG and getting back to his roots to actually create an entertaining movie again. I, I just, I mean, I, I love, I've, I've said it before and I'll say it again, I just love to see these guys actually handicapped and said, don't think about CG, make a movie like all you can use is physical props again or, or actual physical effects, and then where we just absolutely hit a wall, we'll use some CG or we'll use CG for compositing, but you know, make a creative movie again. Don't just do what's in your head because that, to me, just doesn't end up being a good movie like they used to make before they had that at their disposal. Sure. And, I mean, the the cool thing is this, the the premise of the book is basically a, it's a pirate book. It's a book about pirates, but it's it's much more of a historical fiction pirate book. So it's it's about how pirates, how, you know, actual pirate things used to go down in the, in the <laughs> late uh, 17th century, uh, which to me, like, in my head, I'm picturing, like, master and commander with pirates and that just sounds awesome uh scott any thoughts i can only hope though that in a in this modern era of post johnny depp and pirates of the caribbean that we caribbean caribbean take your pick uh (laughs) that we don't end up with movies that try to nod to that or have their own you know that's that's uh, definitely one jack captain jack character i mean that's that's a danger of doing i think any pirate film but to me the fact that it's based off of a Crichton novel gives it a good story to go from uh which makes me more excited about it uh True. scott do you have any thoughts on on this particular story or or the spielberg Crichton collabs in the past well i mean it's hard to know much about the novel at this point you know especially not having any experience with it itself or knowing what sort of a film it would be turned into i mean i'm just more worried about spielberg the fact that he's been sort of you know firing little spit wads of garbage for the last couple of years yeah i mean it's that's fair. I I definitely have heard a lot of people talk about, you know, great directors, but, like, not in their current era. Like, I would almost bundle Spielberg and uh, Ridley Scott into, like, great directors who've done great films. But, like, if you talk about, like, their current era of films, like, you know, if you think of Ridley Scott and Body of Lies and then Spielberg and Indiana Jones 4, like, no one can say that those were great efforts by two pretty prolific directors. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. I'm worried that Spielberg has kind of lost his touch, but maybe, maybe but what he at, needs is a... Look at what Spielberg does differently, and even... Well, Lucas doesn't hardly count, but uh, <laughs> let's, take, let's take Spielberg versus Skoreski, for instance. Scorsese. Um, you, hey, hey, who am I? <laughs> I'll, I'll put that in the addendum. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, you Take their, I mean, look at the film, the body of work they've done, and if you look at how their films progress, you know, on one side, you've got Spielberg, whose films had a great era, and then the more he, the more technology enabled him, in my opinion, at least, and of course, people, some people disagree, for me, the less entertaining his films became, the more just sort of over the top, and it's like, yeah, okay, it's special effects, I can tell it's special effects. Sure. You know, E.T., for me, uh, it was miles better than War of the Worlds. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, and was much, much simpler effects. And, or like, Close Encounters of the Third Kind was miles better than, than War of the Worlds. Absolutely. Another great example. Um, now, on the other hand, you go look at a film by Skoreski, 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> be defiant. Be defiant. <laughs> and you can, because he doesn't rely on special effects, because his movie-making style relies on story, so it doesn't get basically impacted by the changing technology around him, I think he continues to make pretty good films throughout the years. That's I mean, we have The Departed. We've got another film coming up here. Uh, Shut, what's his Shut, next Shutter film? Island is his next, next right, film. Shutter Island, which looks pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, didn't he? Wasn't he involved with the Aviator? He, he directed the Aviator, so yeah, he was involved. Yeah. So that's kind of involved. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I mean, for, for me, yeah, he used the Aviator. Obviously, you had to recreate some of those those scenes, but it didn't impact his movie making style. Sure. And I, 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 for me, that's where directors like Lucas and Lucas has suffered from this from the very beginning. Uh, but Lucas and Spielberg especially have started to lose for me some of their entertainment value because they've gotten so distracted in telling their stories by the technology. They've just gotten away from what was really interesting about them in the beginning, which is telling a story and being creative, not just imagining up a, a totally invented world and just doing whatever comes to your head on screen. Um, yeah. So I don't know. I mean, I love, I love, love, love Michael Crichton's stories. I love even the Andromeda Strain story sure. in the yeah. 70s movie from that way back in the day. Um, so I just hope that maybe Spielberg, more so than with his whole like Indiana Jones, I'm going to use the original lens I shot the film on. Right. I want you to go back and use the original brain you shot <laughs> the movies on. Let's talk. So, so that wide-angle brain or a <laughs> 50 millimeter. <Exactly. laughs> awesome. Throw your computers out the window. Pick them up when you're done. No, I I agree. I think it'd be nice to see see him do a film with sort of one arm tied behind his back again. So, uh, but I mean, a reasonable question is: Is it really the CG that's making his films suck? <laughs> yeah, I think. I, I mean, Indiana Jones aside, the most recent film that he's done was 2005 Munich. I mean, that's 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 fair. I mean, I thought Munich and there's was not a, whole was lot not of a bad CG film. I uh, I think when I I even feel Catch Me If You Can and uh, uh, was the Terminal were not the terminal were not terrible well films. That, yeah. uh, Maybe the terminal was a little no too light. Those, yeah, and true. And those are where he had to use conventional effects, set building, uh, you know, camera work. I think Spielberg does a lot better there. Though again, we're we're talking about a much more effects, you know, driven concept here. We're talking about pirates. Uh, though because it's not a Pirates of the Caribbean fantasy world and it's a real world, maybe that will force him to do some something much more master and commander esque, which is what I'm hoping for. Uh but yeah, hopefully it's a good story, and of course we'll wait till the the book actually comes out this this fall to to see what it is. But I'm excited because you know, as much as Spielberg has disappointed of recent, uh, to me Spielberg and Crichton when they get together are a brilliant combination. So cool. Uh, one more new story before we move on to our top five movies of the summer, and that is uh, so just announced this morning Disney has acquired Marvel. For four billion dollars, uh, as you know, Marvel is the comic book company responsible for things like Spider-Man, the X-Men, the Hulk, basically anything Stanley has ever done. And uh, they've also been well noted for you know not only pushing their comic books but making tons and tons of very successful and very popular movies of recent. Uh, though they're in a bit of financial trouble recently, and Disney said, "Hey." We have lots How of capital. How can Marvel be in financial trouble after all it's, hit movies they've produced it's, in the last it's, four years? It's tough times. Uh, I think they were having not maybe not financial trouble, but they were having a little trouble finding capital for some of their films. And uh, Disney, I guess, saw an opportunity to pick up a very successful uh, 
uh, company full of tons and tons of successful franchises. Uh, what do you guys think about this? Uh, a sort of marriage between, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse and Spider-Man. Uh, maybe not quite so literally, but... Spider-Mouse. 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 This match doesn't doesn't make any sense to me. I, I saw this. I thought they made the announcement yesterday. No, maybe it was this morning. It, it, it may have been yesterday. I just I heard it this, this morning on uh, NPR. But when I first saw this announcement, my first reaction was, uh, yeah, basically, X-Men meets, <laughs> meets Mickey Mouse? What? Right. It's like, where, where in, the, in the Disney sort of magical kingdom princesses and princes uh, universe do we even for Wolverine? I mean, it just doesn't seem like in Disney World there's going to be room for these two characters to exist side by side. Or, they're, or, they're almost... I would say almost worse, like Hannah Montana and the Hulk. <laughs> it's like, it's like, ugh. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, if you want to go to their more modern characters, uh, for Disney at least. So I don't know. This is I understand that, yes, this is another character-driven uh, company that is built on uh, IPs that were originally comics and then cartoons and have now found their ways to movies. So very much within that realm of, technically speaking, what Disney does. Right. But the attitude of Marvel, the, the, cult, sure. the culture of the company and the characters – seems 180 from the attitude and the culture of Disney. Right. And that's for me where I, I scratch my head and say, what's a Disney-made movie with these characters going to be like? I mean, are we going to have to have the, the, the single-parent family meets, you know, happy ending sure. to, to make a Disney-made movie like this? Now, so now, now to be, I'm a little confused. To be fair, Disney does own Touchstone and Miramax, which are definitely not the classic, you know, Disney family-friendly uh, uh, movie studios. And it... And it owns ABC and ESPN. Right. So I mean, there's it's definitely almost like a, a GE at this point. It owns a lot. So I mean, you have to you have to imagine they're going to let Marvel, who's been pretty successful of recently, especially with stuff like X Men and Spider Man. Uh, you have to imagine they're going to give them a bit of leeway to do what they want because you know they have Iron Man coming up soon, and that's going to be a huge, huge box office hit. Uh, yeah. So, but it, I do agree. It, it this was a little head scratching. I, I mean. For one, it's like really Marvel. You needed to be bought out, and Disney. What what the heck do you want to do with Marvel? Like, I cannot imagine Disney ever trying to marry in their IP with Marvel IP, or even Disney <laughs> trying to produce stuff like you know Marvel-based cartoon stuff on the Disney Channel. I just can't see that. Uh, you know, no. I think they're past that point. I really don't see Disney as the company is now making this a good merger. <laughs> so, uh. The other thing that was sort of uh, head-scratching for me is... No, go ahead, go Scott. Ahead, Scott. To quote the great yogurt, I believe the answer is merchandising, merchandising, merchandising. <laughs> merchandising. I mean, Disney is extremely good at moving moving licenses yeah, and turning them into money. You know, any successful film they turn into a gajillion spinoffs, plus TV shows, plus video games, theme parks... Uh, that's that's an interesting you know, one actually. toys you know who, who wouldn't want a toy of you know the avengers or whatever if you think it's a cool movie and you're like 12 but do you, i mean disney's do you think perfect at selling those but do you think things. marvel needs help making action figures like i mean i was about to say but who doesn't have a toy of wolverine yeah who doesn't have, have the avengers like toy sets like i i it's to, to me i don't like i can understand where you can profit from this and i know disney is great at merchandising but uh uh it's it's it is a bit odd but even 
even at the advertising level, this doesn't fit into Disney's portfolio because where do you put the X-Men section in the Disney store? I mean, you've got yeah, the princesses point. and then you've got Winnie the Pooh and then you've got uh, you know, Nemo yeah. and then you've got X-Men well, and then that, you've got That you actually know, brings up that brings up an interesting point. This does put Marvel and Pixar under the same umbrella. Now, obviously they've let Pixar do their own thing cuz Pixar is obviously quite skilled at at uh, producing their own stuff and being brilliant at it. Uh, but do you imagine maybe you might see some Spider-Man doll show up in the next Toy Story movie or something like that? <laughs> I mean, you have to wonder, it's right? Always possible. Always possible. The, the only it thing I, I would add, add beyond this is the thing that's sort of scratched my head on, at a business level is if you've ever been to the major theme parks in Florida... Sure. You know that yeah. uh, Disney does Disney characters, and Universal, Universal does Studios Marvel. does a lot of not only DC comics because no. they do a lot of DC, Batman, and Spider Man. A ton of Marvel. They also do a lot of X Men. Yeah, they've got a Spider Man rides. They've got all these other kinds of things. So I'm very curious to see how this relationship yeah. between <laughs> Disney, Marvel, and Universal starts to shake out because those guys, not only at the theme park level, but also at the movie-making level, yeah, tend point. to compete head-to-head. That's a good point, yeah. yeah I really don't know how that's going to work, but I imagine we'll start seeing some, some changes now that they no longer have the... Well, that's a good question. I don't, I don't know how the business works, I guess, enough for that, but uh, yeah, wacky move, I have to say. Dis- if you had told me that Disney was going to buy Marvel and you just said, would you believe it? I'd say no. Yeah. So I, this is definitely probably one of the most surprising business moves from a business perspective I've seen yeah. in a while. Though, so I mean, we'll have to just see how this shakes $4 out. $4 billion. Marvel's got to be happy. That's that's a, that's a pretty sum for <laughs> a, a a movie studio. <laughs> I hope somebody's getting a bonus. Yeah, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, well, that's... So, oh, I no, wanted to jump in just with a tiny piece of sure. news, if I may. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, there's a very... At least from what I from the pulse of the internet, there's a very wide reaction that the... James Cameron upcoming film Avatar has a disappointing trailer. Yes, yes. Uh, and first I wanted to bounce off of you two guys what you thought of the trailer since we haven't directly talked about that and I know Dustin you've been particularly interested in have even seen a preview of yep. some of the footage in the film. Yep. Uh, and be whether or not you think that will play into whether or not people will want to go and see it. Yeah, I, I think what we're seeing is the Cameron backlash from him basically hyping his film to the point of saying this is going to change things. It's going to look like something you've never seen before. Uh, we're starting to see the backlash of when you release a a very small format trailer that most people are going to see in a very, or at least most people are going to watch in a very small format, uh, and claiming that it's going to look like nothing you've ever seen before. Now, I would have to say, you know, I actually did get to go out to one of these Avatar Day screenings where we saw it in IMAX in 3D, and I have to say, what I saw looked mind-blowingly beautiful. Uh, I actually did a write-up on it at dailyminotony.com. You can go read about it. I did a scene-by-scene breakdown, so you can you can both see what uh, what happened there and what I thought of it. Uh, but yeah, I'm, I'm super excited about this film. I think it looked amazing, and I actually do think it looked pretty groundbreaking. I've never seen a... a th- Is everything in the Avatar trailer animated? No. So, I mean, there's definitely live-action and set work in the beginning, but once you get into the, the sort of the world, this Pandora alien world, and you get into just the blue cat people stuff, that's all completely animated. Uh, all the location stuff is animated. All the characters are animated. All the vegetation is animated. So, And, and I'll say... So I'm watching the trailer right now, and I was about to say, if everything in this is animated, 
holy cow. But no. now that I'm only through the first half, I'm like, okay, you can, that's you can still human. You can probably tell where it turns animated. But still, I mean, some of the locales of it look brilliant. I mean, and having, again, having seen bits and pieces of this in in a theater, in IMAX, in 3D, I have to admit, it looks, it looks remarkably beautiful. And, and beyond the fact, is it groundbreaking or not? It's just like the aesthetics of it are beautiful. Like the color choices, the palette, the, the art direction just looks, it looks awesome. It looks like an amazing sci-fi fantasy film. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. I just think we're getting this sort of negative internet buzz from the people who are like, oh, James Cameron was full of it. He, he wasn't lying. This, this looks CG. This looks like crap, blah, blah, blah. I do think James Cameron is lying because I'm looking at it right now because I hadn't seen the trailer and the part where you transition to CG is obviously CG. Oh, sure it I mean, is. They're still, they still have not done come even close to overcoming that but, but, uh, barrier of, of recognizing you're I, watching I would CG say or not. You, and I thought the whole point was that James Cameron was saying he had found a way well, to make it look Here's the thing. Is I have to, you, have to be, you have to realize that what he's making CG are characters that are obviously not real. And I think there's just... I'm not talking about the characters. I'm talking about even the environments. Oh, really? Yeah, I mean the environments are are so obviously CG. Well, I mean, yeah, I don't know. I actually thought the veg- <laughs> I thought the vegetation looked amazingly spectacularly real. Looked good for a video game, I guess. Really? But it doesn't look real. Are you kidding? It looks plasticky, like all CG looks plasticky. Oh, wow. It reflects too much light. Wow. I did not get that watching the IMAX 3D footage. Uh, either way, there's going to be tons of backlash. I think of people like you, Todd, like people who have heard James Cameron say, "I've, I've." gone beyond the uncanny valley and i think there's going to be a lot of internet backlash for it i think it's unfortunate i think they should have waited to release the trailer till after the avatar day stuff so we could have gotten some more positive feedback from those because i think from from hearing most people what they've seen i think most people really enjoyed the screenings that they saw and the footage they saw in the uh this sort of real environment so uh yeah i mean what can you say i i'm ex- i'm super excited about this film and having seen the screening i'm even more excited so uh and even if it doesn't like, even if it doesn't look super real, and even if there are some uncanny CG stuff about it, it's, it's like who cares? It looks like an awesome film, and it looks really beautiful. So, I think I think we're getting into a bit of a so not with the hundred and ninety thousand views on YouTube of the current parody of Downfall, in which Hitler in his bunker learns that the Avatar trailer sucks. Oh, okay, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, I, I it's unfortunate. <laughs> I think it, the problem with the internet is it's full of cynics and. Cynics are never. Uh, the problem was James Cameron's hyping of this. I think maybe there's some fault on both sides, but I do have, I do think the the internet population of saying like, "Oh, this looks like crap. This looks terrible." Blah 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 is ridiculous. It doesn't look terrible. It just doesn't look any different than any CG I've ever seen before. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, na- uh, name okay. na- name name another that film one. that was like fully CG animated that's not Pixar. That looked like this. I tried to go for realistic CG and look this good. All I can think of is the uh, the uh, Spirits Within Final Fantasy film. That didn't look nearly as good as this does. No, but I mean, does that what we're? I mean, think, think of like, think of like when you claim your movie is overcome from the uncanny valley, asking to be compared to other CG, you're asking to be compared to reality. I, I, and but for there this, is, I can say, this, hey, you look like Crisis. There, there, but there is. Well, that's see, and that's ridiculous. When you say this looks like a video game, I think that's. That is freaking ridiculous. There's no way this looks anywhere <laughs> like a video game. This if video games it looks like a video if, game trailer. If video games look like this, we would be like in the future and we would all have been killed by robots. <laughs> so hey, that day's coming. So let's just, just let's just yourself. I don't know. I, I hate the fact that people are really I think people are lashing back more strongly than they should 
because of what James Cameron said. I think it's unfortunate on both sides. I think people should stop complaining about the trailer and and just and <laughs> just wait for this thing in film to come out. I think it's gonna be good. All I want is an apology from James Cameron for overhyping his movie. This is this is ridiculous. This this is at these times is when I sort of hate the internet. It was like really you guys you guys from like ten or like. 60 seconds of film have already decided how this film is going to look. Watching it on your computer, streaming off of YouTube, it's like, come on. Give me a break. <laughs> I'm watching it from Apple, not YouTube. Okay, well, yeah. <laughs> it's an HD. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. <laughs> so that's my opinion. Moving on. Moving on. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so this week, there wasn't a film that any of us wanted to see. Halloween 2, Final Destination, were not, not high up on my queue. Uh, I will speak for the rest of the people here, but uh, that said, it is the official end of the summer. Uh, we're into fall season now, and that being the case, we want to look back over the summer. Bunch of movies released, bunch of huge budget movies, bunch of exciting movies released, and go over some of our favorites. So we've prepared our top five films of the summer, and we're going to share them with you. Uh, but before we do that, Todd, I think you actually dug up a little bit of uh, statistics and data on this summer of filmagery. So, uh... The summer of filmagery. <laughs> uh, if, if you have been following every movie that's coming, you would have been following over 150 movies. In fact, you would have been following closer to 190 movies released in total this summer, uh, including all of the limited release and small release films. Clearly, big budget, wide release, a much smaller number. So, uh, a crap ton of films. <laughs> a crap ton of films and a crap load of crappy films <laughs> mixed in with that. Uh, on average, there are about 50 films released every month. Um, so that's the the rate that, at which these films came out. And it was pretty consistent. I was surprised month to month. I mean, there was not a huge variation uh, from May to August in terms of one month seeing more films than another. Uh, so basically, and throughout all of that, I saw a total of 10 films. So I managed to see about 5% of this <laughs> summer's total production. Uh, and we can analyze what you guys saw as we go along. Uh, yeah, I mean, so, so I mean, basically, we're saying if you had if you had seen a movie every single day this summer, you still not would not have been able to see every film that was released this summer, and that's that's pretty nuts. Absolutely. Summer it takes more time. Yeah. And and now that's being said, and let me make sure people understand. I collected my list from uh, MovieWeb.com, which had a, mo- a week by week listing of every movie from the summer. And so, I mean, within that are very small releases like The Merry Gentleman, The Skeptic, <laughs> Limits of Control, and even Naked Ambition, an R-rated look at an X-rated industry. So, uh... so, so clearly a lot of independent film getting released during that. But even then, I mean, summer is traditionally, uh, you know, back when movie theaters used to be the place where you could go to get air conditioning, because they, they used to be the only air conditioned places you could go to. Uh, that's why summer movies became such a big popular thing. People would be a hot day in the summer. They'd see a movie theater with a big advertisement that said air conditioning, and they'd go see a movie at night. So, I mean, summer really has, for at least the United States, become a traditional huge movie release uh, period. And, of course, this summer's no different. Next summer will be no different. Uh, let's go ahead and start things off with our top five lists. Mr. Johnsgard, I will let you go first with your top five, and uh, why don't you tell us what order you're gonna you're gonna do it in? Since my top five is not even likely to be five, 
Uh, well, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> Intriguing. <laughs> and I thought I was the failure. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, presumably, um, you'll, you'll want me to go in, in, in reverse awesome medical order. Uh, you can choose oh. whatever order you want to go in. So instead, I'll go in the order from the films which should be on my list, which I didn't see, to the ones which I actually did. Okay. All within your good list, right? Yes. yes. Okay. Right. Start these yeah. off. The one that got away is not on the list, so. Okay, so uh, we all like science fiction. You know, we're dudes. This is an internet podcast. It all it all follows from there. And this summer, we had the limited release of a particularly interesting, basically, one-man show film called Moon. Uh-huh. So this is, this is a film you... That's about all I know about it, but apparently it was really good. This is a film that you wish you had seen. <laughs> That's about all. Yeah. But, uh, but did not get a chance to see. Okay, cool. For reference, so, for those keeping track, it grossed total less than a million dollars. Less? Uh, uh, no, no, I think... No, on average, on average, excuse me, per theater average, you... it grossed 4.7 million over the summer over the course yeah. of 49 weeks. Yep. Which, how does that... No, that's 49 theaters. I got this all screwed up for Moon. <laughs> Moon was in over 12 weeks. It grossed 4.7 million. man remains in, wrong. <laughs> in an average of 49 theaters thank you very much i'll be here all <laughs> <night>. <laughs> so yeah so definitely it's a this is a limited release film micro budget film i uh, never got wide release but uh i uh, okay definitely a film you'd like to have seen but didn't get a chance to see uh let's move, let's move on move on to the next film which falls in exactly the same category and that is the 500 days of summer so you did not get a chance to see this. Apparently, this film is awesome. Uh, it was also in limited release, but it went much, much wider than Moon ever did, presumably because it's a romantic comedy, and Americans like those as opposed to something that actually requires you to think. Yeah, it's true. Uh, okay, cool. Good. We have the stats on that? Let's, uh, let's, I don't let's have just, stats for let's you. Let's just on move on. <laughs> Other than to tell you that it's been out for seven weeks, and it's grossed so far $25 million. Cool. Okay, so moving on to the films that, that, that I actually did see, in fact, we've talked about it in quite a bit of detail on this All right. uh, podcast, is the South African release, District 9. All right, so that's District 9 rolling in at 5. Why was District 9 your fifth choice? Well, actually, technically, it turns out more as being my fourth choice. Okay. I'm going to tie the two movies I haven't actually seen as number 5. Okay, that's cool. <laughs> that, that works. Oh, the uh, the two thirds rule of some kind for movie rating. <laughs> yeah. So so moon in, in five hundred days of okay let's let's clarify things. So moon in five hundred days of summer count as your number five movies of the year, having never seen them. The <laughs> shoulda or, 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 coulda woulda. Yeah okay. Gotcha. Okay. I'm, nice. I'm clear. <laughs> number four, District Nine, Neil Blomkamp. Why is that number four? Well, I think. The first thing we saw in District 9 was the introduction to worldwide viewers of a new director. Yep. Who likely has a very significant um, career ahead of him, which, you know, will be significantly, uh, if not notable or artistically important, though certainly we have a lot of hopes that it will be, uh, well-funded, at least for a short time. Yeah. And therefore impactful, at least as far as the American cinema and box office is concerned. Um, and I think it's something that we can be hopeful about because what we saw in District 9 was a very technically proficient director who is able to do a lot of good art. And that's 
in the sense that I think it works as a piece of sci-fi fairly well. I think it works as a as an action film fairly well, and I think it works as a piece of uh, historical slash cultural commentary very well. Yeah, definitely. Is. And as a result, it's a pretty decent movie. Uh, it's certainly worth watching, and it, it's something that I would say you know you really shouldn't go out of this summer without having seen. Yeah, cool. All right, it's number four, District Nine. What about number three. Number three is, is, is a film just recently dropped, and we certainly spent a lot of time talking about it just just quite recently on this podcast, and that is Inglorious Bastards. The Bastards. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, this, uh, more so than any other film that's come out this summer, has been the sort of film that makes me want to go back and see it the next day. Cool. Over again. Yeah, yeah, I, I would definitely agree. This is a... A great showing, a great great late season sort of like last second showing uh, by Quentin Tarantino, uh, Inglorious Bastards, pretty awesome. Number three, uh, do you think? You, yeah, and I mean, well, I would say I would throw out. Do you think? Do you think you expect to see? And I I sort of expect to see this mentioned later again when Oscar season comes around. Uh, if not for at least Christoph Waltz's uh, performance, uh, uh, some kind of editing or, or maybe not editing but <laughs> direction or art direction or or who knows what maybe even a best director nod maybe a best film nod uh of course we have not seen any of the oscar bait films come out that's still a long way off but this this is definitely something i could see contending in the future yeah i think um probably of or maybe second to one other film of all the films i'm going to mention in my top four and a half list is most likely to show up in the best picture column out of all the summer films that we had. Though in this case, just because it's been expanded to 10 nominees. That's, that's um, a good point too. I forgot about that. I, I, I think that Tarantino has a lot of, uh, a lot of big fans who will sort of kind of like Scorsese, you know, his best was not the departed, but it's the one he got recognized for sure. because finally enough fans had built up. And I think you might see the similar sort of effect for Inglorious Bastards, which you, you could almost say, well, like Danny Boyle, he definitely, you know, Slumdog was a great film, but he definitely got a an achievement award for producing some of the, you know, some of the best films of the past decade, so. Right. Cool. All right. Number two, and I think I think I know what these last two are going to be, but uh, why don't you go ahead and tell us? <laughs> <laughs> the question is what order what they What order? In, but, <laughs> but if if you know me, there's absolutely well, actually, no doubt. Actually, no, you know what? Actually, I'm not quite so sure anymore. Uh, uh, actually, I just put a little hiccup into this whole process, but go ahead. I, I'm I'm curious what what sort of uh, just just you keep going. I, I think we might <laughs> just, way to just, go. Just go with it all. I, I think I think there might be. I think you may have left one off. But I don't know. We'll see. All right. Well, <laughs> perhaps all right. number two uh, is is number two is uh, you in, got it in, <laughs> wrong. You wrong answer. I'm sorry. Wait. <laughs> number number two. Number two, uh, the the first movie I have seen Evangeline Lilly in, and it doesn't suck, and that makes me happy, and that is Catherine Bigelow's The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker. Yes, which everyone still wants to know what the title means, and that remains an open question on this podcast. But The Hurt Locker... It's a locker. Definitely... <laughs> yeah, it does hurt. Uh, with, with the exception of number one, easily the best film I've seen this summer. Easily... With the exception of number one, the best film I've seen this year, and maybe for quite some period of time, really a film that gets into the mind and psychology and soul of what it means to to soldier. 
yeah, totally. Uh, Hurt Locker, what what an astounding action film that no one is ever going to see <laughs> until it comes out on DVD. Uh, I, I I think this this could have been billed as a a block a summer blockbuster action film, and it would have done multi tens of millions of dollars. Uh, uh, it's unfortunate this this got such a small release, uh, but again, if you have the chance to see this film, awesome, awesome film, Hurt Locker. Scott's number two, which leaves only one left. I better know what it is, but why don't you go ahead and, and tell us? <laughs> well, yeah, so like anything on number one, it, it ascended to that position, and the direction that it ascended is the film itself up. Awesome, awesome. <laughs> By Pixar, I, I really don't need to say anything in defense or in praise of Pixar because it's all been said before, but suffice it to say, you know, it's amazing. And it made, as our stat man will probably report, it made more money than all my other films combined. So that must say something about other people actually agreeing with me that it's good. Yeah, I mean, and if, if nothing else, Pixar proving that they can still do no wrong, even when you think they will. They can't do wrong. <laughs> Interesting, and something that perhaps... We'll, we'll dive into Pixar, at least by the very rough estimates provided by uh, provided by BoxOfficeMojo.com, may not have actually made money at the box office for the studio. Um, really? We'll talk about that a little bit later, but it did do well. And let's let's be clear: Up is one of the, the top grossing movies of the summer. It's grossed close to two hundred ninety million dollars over fourteen weeks. Um, but it, based on its budget, and its budget was somewhere in the range of 175 million, and according to Box Office Mojo, if you can believe what they say, they say on average studios earn approximately 55% of the final gross. Then, if you do the math, then technically, Up is still in the red, about 15 million dollars, wow. which is very shocking, and we'll talk a little bit about the profitable movies uh, at the end of this, but still, one of the top grossing movies of the summer. You can't be unhappy with that. No. And Scott, I just thought I'd throw it out there. Based on your top five or six, as it may be, uh, your average Rotten Tomatoes score for your summer movies is a 91.5%. So a very high <laughs> collection of movies. Not, not too terrible. Awesome. Well, moving right along into our stat master, Mr. Todd Anglin. What are your top five films of 2009? My top five. Uh, summer uh, I've actually seen. I've actually seen my top five. Well, that's uh, good. Which helps. That's that's always Dossie's good. good. <laughs> that's always good. <laughs> a little bit different than Scott's. A few a few that overlap, but a bit different. Certainly, the order is different. Uh, so bring it up from the bottom. Uh, the bottom for me is uh, probably District Nine, District which. Nine. Which was a good movie. I won't dive into depth for it because we talked about it very recently. And if you want to know more about our opinions, go check out the, the archives uh, of this podcast. But uh, I liked it. It was good. But it's one that I'm not sure I'd go watch again. But I, like Scott said, I enjoyed the new director. I enjoyed the new take on an alien film. And for that, for five spot, especially given what it was up against. In fact, I could be tempted to swap out District 9 for The Proposal. But because I'm a dude, I think I'm gonna keep District Nine in my top five or my top. <laughs> wait, wait now. The proposal. Uh, ex- explain this 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 particular film. The proposal is a, was a comedy from earlier in the summer with Sandra Bullock and I forget who else. Um, oh yeah, and what's Ryan Reynolds? Ryan Reynolds, yeah. Ryan Reynolds, right? 
Um, and I saw that on a weekend in San Antonio when we were trying to see uh, The Ugly Truth, but it was sold out. So we saw the proposal, and I'm really happy that it was sold out. It was quite uh, fortunate because it turned out to be a really quite entertaining and funny movie. And as it turns out, by the box office standards, it actually has been one of the most profitable and successful movies of the summer as well, grossing over $160 million, making it probably one of the top grossing comedies of the summer. Interesting, so. Interesting. Uh, it, it actually, it, despite perhaps the critical ratings, it's a funny and entertaining movie, especially if you're just looking for another comedy. So DC again opposed to District 9, but District 9 was unique. It was a little more epic, so it gets my number five, but barely over the proposal. Gotcha. <laughs> uh, number four for me is actually Up. Uh, I thought Up was a, a good movie. I... I couldn't help but tear up at the beginning of it, and for that alone, it earns a top five spot. Yep. Uh, really touching movie, probably one of the most touching movies from Pixar. Not my favorite Pixar movie. I didn't walk away with it just being like, man, I'd love to go watch that over and over again. Sure. But certainly the most emotional, and, and for an animated film to evoke that emotion, it earns some credit in my book. So number four for Up. Number three is uh, Inglorious Bastards ah, also. Wow, so, interesting. I thought, despite perhaps um, some of my criticism of uh, aspects of the movie, it's actually a movie that was intriguing enough to me that I'd actually enjoy going watching it again. It was just different enough. I love Brad Pitt as one of the greatest actors of our time, and that combined with some of the, the just oddities of the way Quentin Tarantino puts the movie together, uh, it doesn't become just the droll and the bore that, for me, sometimes a godfather is. So it becomes an interesting godfather as a way of, of speaking. So yeah. uh, th that makes my top top three. Awesome. Uh, which brings us to my top two. Okay. <laughs> really? <laughs> if you're keeping along and if you can do basic math. Uh, any predictions for what my number two movie will be? Uh, I feel, So I'll, let me put this out. I think I know what your number one movie is going to be. Uh Number two movie. Uh, I have suspicions. That's, that's nice. Let me. <laughs> is it the that whatchamacallit movie that you saw when we saw when we went and saw GI Joe? You saw the Perfect Getaway. Yeah, uh, Perfect Getaway. Is it? No, that did not make my top five. That is actually in my middle. Collection. Okay, well, I haven't seen it, so that's about the only thing I can think of. Uh, there's nothing else on my list that I think is gonna there unless it's what I think your number one is but I'm I'm obviously not getting anywhere soon so why don't you tell us what your number two is unless... my, num my number two movie of the summer and I think it surprised a lot of people oh, is oh the hangover. hangover yes yes <laughs> the hangover was by far the best comedy of the summer by far the most profitable movie of the summer for the movie studios, grossing over $270 million on a budget. The movie was made on a budget of about $30 million. Yeah. Uh, so hugely profitable, hugely funny. Nobody expected it. And certainly for the, the guys that played the lead characters in this, I've seen them now advertised all over the place. Yeah, so this no launched, kidding. I think, their careers. Uh, it's really put them in the spotlight. Almost like the new... Uh, the new gang of what was it, Vince, uh, Vince Vaughn and um, Luke Wilson and the guys that did old, uh, um, what was it, old school and some of the right. other comedies like that little comedy troupe from yeah, from about how, five or ten, yeah, I mean, about five years ago. I mean, old school really did. These guys put now are popping up there. all over the place. It's sort of the new comedy troupe. Yeah, so I think so. Which is which is so, which? It's awesome to see to see a 
yeah, I, I will totally agree. This is this was an amazing film. This is the fun, this is this is the summer comedy. There's nothing else that comes close. Funny people, sorry, not not quite as funny people. Yeah. <laughs> it, it didn't quite get as high. I mean, it's putting this movie in my top five does impact my overall average Rotten Tomato score. But it was super you know funny. Yeah. Um, I I think you have to see this movie if you're going to see any of the movies from summer 2009. It's just the comedy to see. Well, so um, I mean, summers traditionally have their comedies, and they traditionally have one comedy that really stands out above the rest. I mean. If you think of like Anchorman and, and comedies like that, those were summer comedies. Even stuff like uh, Austin Powers was a summer comedy. So it's it's always great to find that one summer comedy. And I I really do think this is going to be this is going to be a cult classic sum, summer uh, comedy. I think we're going to see more stuff uh, from these guys and in, in this vein. And uh, yeah, what 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 a I think a great choice for number two. Yeah, and absolutely. So that that one I guarantee you I will be I will be purchasing when it's available. Uh, and my number one movie, then, as I've limited it down here, I imagine you can pick it, yep. but I'll give you the chance since you str- mm. struggled on number two. What do you think my number one is? Well, let's just say that. Uh, well, I, I, actually, I want to. I'll see if, if Scott can guess this one because this this one actually sort of surprised me that this was not in his list. Scott, what do you think it is? Well, it's not Julie and Julia. Sure, ain't Julie and Julia. <laughs> And it's not public enemies because Todd and I, I felt I very did. similar about that. So this, what I think it is, and I'm almost positive I know what it is, uh, was what I thought was like the bang start of the summer movie. Uh, also was I, I agree with you there, but I don't think it's a magnificent film. Interesting. Well, uh, so, so now <laughs> which is why it's so, not so on now, my to list. To break the and the and the deadlock of opinion. <laughs> so now that we've left everyone in suspension and. And maybe we can add, like, a three-second thing of, like, can you guess what Todd's number one movie is? Can you guess? Do, 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 do. better than yours. <laughs> <laughs> All right. End the suspense, Todd, and tell us number about Number one this. movie. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, not the, the most. Unfortunately, not the highest-grossing action movie of the summer, but still one of the best. And as you said, kicked off the summer on the right note. Star Trek by J.J. Uh, Abrams yes. directing... <laughs> Best movie of the summer for me by far, just in part because it set the tone for the summer. It was my Iron Man. It was my Dark Knight of the summer. Uh, you know, a great. It was a movie that for me had every potential to fail and to fail miserably and to leave me just disappointed in both J.J. Abrams yep. as a director and in the Star Trek franchise reboot. Yep. But it did what Iron Man did for me. It did what Dark Knight did for me with Batman. And it left me satisfied, it left me entertained, and it left me looking forward to the actual sequels with this cast and with this direction and this crew. So uh, for those reasons, it earns my top billing spot. And at $257 about million dollars gross over 17 weeks, it didn't do too bad at the box office either. Not too bad at all. Uh, so I, I absolutely, absolutely agree. I think this was the perfect start to the summer season. What a an amazing reimagining of the Star Trek universe. I mean, go back and listen to our podcast on it. We we talked some good stuff about it. How we, I think we both agree that this uh, took a franchise that had been really kind of dogging down in some of the recent films. Uh, something I think that people were starting to associate with crap, <laughs> and I think just right. total facelift. I think this got people excited about Star Trek again. I think this is going to keep Star Trek alive for a long time in the future. Uh, yeah, uh, great, great choice. Uh, and which brings me so my which, average. Uh, oh yeah, go my ahead, go average ahead. Rotten Tomatoes rating comes out. 
to an 89.4%. So Scott does uh, take the lead so far in as far as critical in, review in the, goes. In the, critic, the critical highbrow um, <laughs> cycle. Uh. So for those keeping score, that's where we lie so far. Now, I should have gone in, in to keep my statistician uh, uh, appeal here, my appearance up. I should have gone ahead and totaled some of the uh, box office gross because had I done that, then anybody who put Transformers in their top five <laughs> may have pulled <laughs> to an unfortunate lead. But uh, yes. we'll leave it to Dustin and his list to see okay, how the highbrow before, critical before ratings Before I out. get into my list, Scott, I have to say, how on earth could you put two films that you've never seen over Star Trek? <laughs> <laughs> well, to be honest... You know, as much as Star Trek was an enjoyable film to go and see, and in fact, I think I saw it twice in theater, which is unusual. I definitely saw this one twice. (laughs) Glad you guys have memories. (laughs) I mean, I I mean, this to me, this was like this was a film that I I went and saw opening night, and like the next day, I'm like, we gotta go see an IMAX. Let's see it again. (laughs) Uh, so you were saying why you left Star Trek out? Yes, why I left Star Trek out. Um, I think you made the analogy at one point that uh, Watchmen was like fine wine and that new notes would come out of it upon further quaffing. Yes. And I made the analogy that I thought the Star Trek movie was like a nice bottle of Sprite. It had a lot of sweetness, a lot of fizz, a lot of impact. You know, you can't drink it all at once. But once you've had it, that's all there is to it. Sure. I'd go with a margarita. <laughs> it's a little tequila. Coming out feeling happy. <laughs> Come out feeling a little buzzed. Maybe not quite so good to drive. <laughs> That's Star Trek. <laughs> Looking forward to the next one. <laughs> uh, yeah, okay. Well, I think it's fair. So, But you, you, would, you would say that Star Trek was not good enough to, to even make it above films that you've not seen. I, I'm I'm more willing to gamble on films and the reputations that they garnered from people that I respect than I am to necessarily give a sentence to a film that I did see that, you know, while it was fine, while it was a B plus, I it doesn't have the potential to be an A, hmm, which these other two films almost certainly do. Okay, we do respect all opinions, <laughs> some <laughs> less, <laughs> but we. I'll, I'll respect that. All right, let's 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 get this thing done with. Uh, go through my top five. Okay, so my number five films, one that was not on either of your lists, and I didn't expect. Well, I'm actually kind of surprised that it wasn't on Scott's list, but that's okay. Uh, and this was the uh, Ryan Johnson film, The Brothers Bloom. Uh, so this is a film I, I so I, I was first of all huge fan of Ryan Johnson. I think he's probably one of the most brilliant writer directors out there. Uh, he's a young talent. I b- wish him the best for the future of his career. I think The Brothers Bloom is is a perfect example of probably one of the most best written films of the year. And if you want to write a film, just be completely, almost literarily brilliant. Brothers Bloom is perfect for that. Plus, it's a quirky comedy. I actually think this is probably one of the, the funniest of the independent films that got released this year. Uh, I think The Hangover was definitely more laughs per minute. But uh, Brothers Bloom, again, wonderful film. Ryan Johnson, probably not something most people saw because it looked a little weird, looked a little independent. And I would even, I would even say that this is totally a gimme for my particular tastes. I do love that kind of quirky independent film. I liked Brick, I, which was Ryan Johnson's film before this. Uh, 
So maybe a bit of more of the uh, cinephile side, but uh, I definitely, if you're a nerdy, geeky guy who likes smart comedies, Brothers Bloom, awesome film. My number five. Which moves me. I'm gonna. I'm gonna not make the summer summary list, which means that's gonna be a, a big goose egg in your uh, Rotten Tomato score. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So I'm off to a good start. Let's keep moving on there. Uh, the next one, uh, sort of continuing my uh, this summer of kind of great low budget independent films, is Duncan Jones's Moon. Uh, gr- what a great science fiction film. Thoughtful science fiction film. Uh, Starring Sam Rockwell, basically playing off himself the entire time. Uh, I, I would say this is, you know, not only one of the most brilliant performances I've I've seen this summer, uh, but just a great example of how thoughtful science fiction can be such an awesome genre. It this was my sunshine of this year. This was my sort of thought-provoking uh, psychological science fiction film that didn't have to have explosions and booms and people's heads exploding. So. Uh, yeah, if you're if you're a junkie for like good science fiction, if you're the kind of person who reads, you know, like uh Isaac Asimov books or stuff like that, uh Moon, what a wonderful film. I'm so sad that it got such a limited release. Uh definitely I think I think if you're a science fiction fan at all, you should check out this film uh when it comes out on uh for on DVD and Blu-ray. Uh great film. My number 4. Number 3 is Disney Pixar's Up uh, I think we've talked about this a lot. Pete Doctor's film, I was definitely worried about this film before it came out. Uh, it looked like it was going to be a bit more kidsy focused as Pete Doctor films kind of tend to be, since he did uh, Monsters Incorporated before this. But what a spectacular film. Pixar proves that they can do no wrong. Beyond that, they can prove that they know how to tell a stinking story, and they know how to develop characters from people that you you've never seen they can take someone you've never known they can have you crying for him within the first 10 minutes uh, uh pixar's i mean i think pixar's love for the art of storytelling and movie making really came out in up uh i think i may have said in a previous podcast that i thought this is my favorite pixar film uh as it settled a bit i think maybe that was a bit a bit rash of a statement <laughs> uh, I definitely would still, I think, put Ratatouille at the top for my favorite film, and then probably Wally even over this as films that I would want to go see over and over again. Uh, Up, of course, being a bit more, a bit more somber at the beginning is kind of makes it uh, more difficult to watch, and you have to put yourself in the kind of I need to be willing to cry in the first ten minutes of this film mood. Uh, but but <laughs> but beyond that, what what a great film! Uh, Pixar continues to to outshine themselves and that's uh you know it's an amazing thing to to watch the studio just you know blow your mind every summer number two my number two is the hurt locker (laughs) really the hurt locker (laughs) so Catherine bigelow's awesome low-budget iraqi war freaking action film uh, and I know what you're going to say is, but Dustin, what about Inglorious Bastards? But Dustin, what about District 9? So let me say, no let me say, I love those films. You've got some comedy in your list. I know, and, and yeah, what about The Hangover? Let me say, District 9, The Hangover, and Inglorious Bastards were all fighting very hard to be on this list. Uh, 
there's a part of me that said I don't want to mention them just because I know they're going to get mentioned by other people and they they've already gotten a lot of attention. So I kind of had a bit of Oscar mentality going into this that I wanted to bring up some films that I know people hadn't seen. Though, I mean, really when I came down to it, like The Hurt Locker is a film that I just, I loved from beginning to end. And as much as I liked Inglorious Bastards and liked District 9, I definitely felt like I had far more qualms with those films than I did with a film like The Hurt Locker. The Hurt Locker just from beginning to end was exciting, intense, and no other film had me on the edge of my seat like The Hurt Locker did. And even the fact that the Hurt Locker, you know, doesn't have so much action, just the way the the story is told and the way it's shot, you feel like the entire film is one long action sequence. And that's just, it's brilliant filmmaking, brilliant storytelling. Uh, I look for a good action film to keep me on the edge of my seat, to keep my adrenaline going. And this, this film had me going the entire time. Uh, Hurt Locker, by far, I think, uh, second best film I saw this summer. Uh, Maybe over time, District 9 and Inglourious Bastards will rise a bit more to the top. In fact, I would imagine when we do our top 10 films of 2009, you might see them higher up and maybe some of these lower down. Uh, not to discredit <laughs> my entire list right off the bat, but... Hi, Brow. I, I'm trying, not, to, I'm trying to boost not, your Rotten Tomatoes Not trying score to, here. to boost any score here, just... I'm just saying that, uh, you know, reflecting, maybe maybe I haven't had enough time to digest District 9 and Glorious Bastards. I think they're awesome films. I would love to have them to be up there. Uh, they definitely, in, in that, in, in The Hangover, they were fighting for that number six slot. Uh, I think I would put them all right there. Uh, I'd have a really hard time building a number 10 list. But, uh, uh, yeah, Hurt Locker, number two. Which, of course... Which brings us to the final review of Pick Top of the Summer, <laughs> Dustin Englund's number one movie of the summer, 2009. Which all I can say is set your phasers to stunning. <laughs> and I'm not stunned. <laughs> I am relieved. Star Trek. Uh, so, I, I first of all, Todd, I want to thank you because you basically said exactly what I thought. I There was one film when I had to think about of the films I'd seen this summer of, you know, what was that film that just walked out of the theater saying, yes, this is why I love films. This is why I love movies. This is why I love this franchise. This is what I love about summer films. This was totally my Iron Man. This was, this was totally my dark Knight, And that's, that's something I, I vividly remember having seen the dark Knight last summer is walking out of that theater being like, yes, perfect film. Awesome. This is why I love films. I had the electricity feeling of just being really excited and really happy. There was no sense of, like, disappointment at all. And, man, Star Trek just blew beyond my expectations for what J.J. Abrams could do with this franchise. Such a such a good, funny, action-packed romp. And, I mean, that's to me, that's what the summer film is supposed to be. When we get into the fall, we're going to get deep drama, you know, make you want to crawl under your covers and and cry for two days that's fine that's what the fall's for it's cold outside it's time to be depressed the summer is time to like to you know jump out there and go woo and man with star trek star trek was just a such a great and refreshing start to this uh this summer uh i didn't have to think twice about naming this as my 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 top film of this summer uh such an easy choice when this comes out on blu-ray i'm gonna snap this thing up it's uh, 
what what an amazing film. That's all I can say. And Scott, I'm I'm so disappointed that this did not make your list. <laughs> so that brings your average Rotten Tomatoes score to 88.4%, which shockingly puts me in second place and shockingly makes you the loser of highbrow films for The Summer and Scott, the most highbrow, critically reviewed film picker. Though Scott cheated a bit by including two movies he'd never seen. So I mean, if, we, if we have to put an asterisk in the record books, that's and, his steroids of his list. All I can say, and I, I think this is this is something I've heard, uh, you know, Wine connoisseurs, food connoisseurs say is always trust your own palate. I think the same thing applies for movies. Never let someone tell you that a movie is terrible unless it was made by Michael Bay. <laughs> now, now summarizing here and making sure that since we've we've explained it here and, re- and just to bring my statistician finale to this, Scott's top five slash six were Up, Hurt Locker, Inglorious Bastards, District Nine, uh, Five Hundred Days of Summer, and Moon going from top, top to bottom. bottom. Mine were Trek, Inglorious Bastard, District 9, Up, and... The Hangover. Oh, wait, uh, wait, 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 wait. The Hangover. I got mine hang, out of Hangover there. was in there at number two. <laughs> yeah, excuse me. I, I was reading off a different list. <laughs> My top five were Star Trek, Hangover, Inglorious Bastards, uh, Up, and District 9. And Dustin, your top five in top to bottom order were Star Trek, Hurt Locker, Up, Moon and the Brothers Bloom, which I did happen to find had a 62% Rotten Tomatoes rating. Uh, boo. So across all of our lists, I think the only movie that shows up on all of them is Up. As a matter of fact, which I mean, uh, well, which is actually that's well, that's kind of surprising. Uh, well, no, and that's not surprising. I mean, honestly, Pixar. Summer every year they put out a great film. You almost you almost think there's something wrong with someone if they can say that Pixar did not have a great film. Which actually, you know what, maybe this brings up sort of an interesting point, is I almost put Pixar films in, like, their own category. Because even though they are great films, like, they almost feel like they're so much better at what they do that it's like, well, duh, it's good. It's the Pixar film. The Pixar does not make bad <laughs> films. Like, it's like I almost feel like it, it can't be compared to other films because it's just, it's like, well, yeah, they they just keep on making great films. Like, it's expected So it's them. like... It's comparing apples to watermelons. It's 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 not surprising when Pixar makes a good film. It's surprising when Pixar makes a bad film. And I would have to say for all these other films, I found them to be surprisingly good. Whereas Up was just good, and that was not a surprise. <laughs> Maybe it was a bit Well, it better. goes back to that. It's almost you could use the equation for customer satisfaction, where your, your experience is the... Uh, the value of your expectations divided by your actual experience sure. that produces or that produces your satisfaction sure. excuse me so when you have high expectations and you meet those expectations then your experience is uh, closer to what you expected to get whereas a movie that surprises you you come out a lot happier so that makes sense uh, at the top of the list number trek shared the top number one spot for your list and my list so people should see. Uh, on the other hand, Hurt Locker shared the number two spot for both your list and Scott's yep. list. Uh, it didn't make my top five. I actually never got to see that, so that's definitely one I'll check out. Definitely see it. Probably the one off of these lists that I would say probably people most should check out if they've missed it. I, I'd absolutely based agree. On the right. Definitely. Now, I wanted to mention, uh, just since we're talking, summarizing this summer, we've looked at our top list. Do you guys think that our top list at all lines up with how the <laughs> total gross box office I, played out this summer? I imagine probably the only things on there are Star Trek and maybe Up. And I think the rest is going to be 
depressingly sad. <laughs> now, actually, my list probably closest lines up to the the top uh, box office of the summer, interestingly. Uh, but just for the quick rundown, so far, what are the top domestic gross films in the U.S.? Number one spot, as depressing as it may be, <laughs> is Transformers: Revenge of the Fallen. Uh. On out for ten weeks, gross almost already four hundred million million dollars uh, it had a budget of approximately i think it was uh, like 100 no 250 million something like that uh, i've i've clicked away from it at this point sure. but either way of all these top grossing films it is one of the few that actually has been profitable if you can believe that <laughs> uh, it actually has made again going off of wow. box office mojo's equations about 20 million dollars for the studio wow. after its 200 million dollar budget so I fear that the studios will look at those numbers and say, Michael Bay, great job. Transformers 3, greenlit. <laughs> You've done a great job. Already happened. Uh, well, I mean, if, if anything, that just, I think that really does highlight how sometimes useless, like, the critical community is. I mean, you, we could talk <laughs> bad about that film day in, day out, and that would never stop it from just being the giant it is. And if anything, that says a huge thing about... I mean, the attraction of both that franchise and Michael Bay as a, a film director. The guy is a is a monster name, and even though he's so infamous, I mean, it's it still brings people in. Maybe part of that infamy actually plays into uh to his box office draw, but and maybe part of it's Megan Fox. But let's let's move on well, to well, maybe when Jennifer's body comes out, we'll see how much of the draw was Megan Fox. <laughs> <laughs> The number two grossing movie, and uh, it is by a, almost a margin of a hundred million dollars less grossed than uh, Transformers, is Harry Potter yeah. and the Half Blood Prince. Harry Potter uh, grossed nearly two hundred and ninety-four million dollars or so, a little over that. Uh, it's only been out for about seven weeks, so Transformers does have a three-week head start. But by for all intents and purposes, it looks like Transformers has a solid hundred million dollar. Uh, margin on the next closest movie this summer, which is just depressing. Yeah, and uh, and because it was a terrible film. And, I don't, and, I don't and, care and to give say. you that that <laughs> critical perspective, Transformers has a 19% rotten rating on Rotten Tomatoes, uh, and of the top five movies, wow. it is the only one that it really is lower than is... 78%. Wow. 78% goes to Hangover. Wow. Uh, so there's your your there's your middle finger to the critics. <laughs> Damn you, uh, Michael number, Bay! <laughs> <laughs> number three grossing movie is, in fact, Up, which grossed about $290 million after 14 weeks. Hangover came in at number four at about 270 and then Star Trek came in number five after 17 weeks at about $257 million. So at least there's, there's something to be slightly hopeful for, that those, those last three are definitely quality films. I'm glad that we did not see Terminator Salvation on this list. I'm glad we did not see Wolverine on this list. Uh, so yeah, Terminator I mean, Salvation and G.I. Joe did make it into the top ten, but they did not uh, punch the top I actually, five. I actually think G.I. Joe is, is, like, I understand. I don't think it's a, a deserving top ten film, but I definitely understand why it got there, and I'm actually not so sad about that. Uh, but yeah, good grief. I'm just so glad Terminator was not in the top five. So I know we've already run really long, and if people are still with us, I hope you're just enjoying this uh, background noise. Yes, indeed. Um, 
But I, I, before we go, if we're talking about the summary of summer movies, I can't go without just mentioning the biggest misses of the summer. Um, Movies that I thought were going to be big and I really had looked forward to that just totally, uh, based on critical review and based on everything that I heard, because some of these movies, I'll admit, I did not in fact see because of the critical review, just did not meet my expectations. And, and to kick things off, the number one movie on that list for me is Terminator Salvation. Yeah, uh, totally. I've been a big fan of Terminator. I was really hoping that uh, they that Christian Bale could reboot Terminator, kind of like he rebooted Batman. And man, did he upset there. And I didn't see it, but for all critical intents and purposes, from what I saw, he just had a swing and a miss on that one. Yeah, I mean, in the, I think we actually, t- when we talked about this, there was something, this was kind of one of those weird things where you had a a great trailer and a terrible film like usually it seems like it goes around the other way like have kind of bad trailers and then a really good film uh but yeah what a what a letdown i mean they were promising a serious more serious tone terminator film after terminator 3 had just gone off the wall of being goofy and crazy i think people wanted were really hoping for something good uh and they tried that but but wow like there was zero acting in this film. Christian Bale was a was probably gave some of the worst acting I've ever seen an actor give. Uh, Sam Worthington was mediocre at best, and yeah, there's it's such a disappointing film. I agree. Probably one of the as a lot of did... go ahead, Scott. As a lot of critics mentioned, the most human things on display in this film were in fact robots. <laughs> robots yes. <laughs> Uh, yeah. So yeah, nice. no, I agree. I was to put the you guys can do, you guys can do the math, but this movie, according to the web, cost about two hundred million dollars to make, yep. and so far it has only grossed about one hundred and twenty-five million, the box office. So uh, even before you start <laughs> doing the calculations of what the studio takes home, this movie has done nothing but lose money. That will be at the end a tax day. write-off for that studio. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the other big movie swing and a miss of the summer for me that I thought was going to be better, and this one was not quite as bad as Terminator Salvation, was X-Men Origins. I had higher hopes for that, and I didn't get to see it again, but it seemed like it didn't quite pass the critical muster that you'd hope for a Marvel movie. I, 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 here's another one where I thought it was just bland and crappy. I mean, I think we had... Well, I mean, we've come to expect some pretty amazing things from X-Men films. I thought... Brian Singer's take on X-Men 2 was spectacular. I didn't mind Last Stand so much, but I still thought it was reasonable. And this this seemed to take one of the coolest and one of the coolest like comic book characters of all time. And I think he's been voted like the most favorite comic book character of all time several times. And they I don't know, they they gave him absolutely zero character and story. They said this was going to be an origin story and there was hardly any origin in it at all. It was like like two seconds, a little bit of story, and then really crappy fighting between him and Liev Shriver. <laughs> <laughs> Liev Shriver, the amazing action actor. Yeah, and I mean there's there's so much promise in this. The concept of Ryan Reynolds as Deadpool, I thought would have been amazing, but they just they played him down. They they screwed with the the canon. They, uh, uh, this was a, a, a this was just a bad film, and they end up shooting the guy in the memories. So <laughs> what can you do? <laughs> <laughs> just add insult to injury. <laughs> no, I agree. This 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 was a I, I was not hugely hyped for this film, but uh, I agree it 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 dropped below my low expectations, and that's that's saying something. 
So the last film then that, that I'll mention of the biggest misses of the summer for me, and just to throw a comedy into the mix, uh, was Land of the Lost. And not because yeah. I thought this would be good, but this was a Will Ferrell movie, uh, and this actually never had any interest for me. I never really had a desire to see this, yep. but Will Ferrell tends to draw a summer audience. It was supposed to yeah, be sure. the big summer comedy. Uh, for those people that may remember, this came out right around the time of The Hangover, and The Hangover just totally, I think, surprised people in terms of how popular it was. <laughs> Land of the Lost cost about $100 million to make, and so far, over the entire summer, it's grossed less than $50 million. Yes. So uh, it's made half the money that it costs to make it uh, in the box office, so maybe this means the last crappy Will Ferrell comedy? I doubt <laughs> it, but we can hope. <laughs> That's 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 very hopeful, but uh, yeah, poor Will Ferrell. I he, I don't know. There's some films where it just feels like he doesn't try, and he's just kind of getting the paycheck and like walking on screen and doing like the ah, I'm Will Ferrell. Ah. It's like ugh. this is one this is one of those films. I I I don't think he showed up. Uh, I'm glad it got destroyed in the box office by the funnier film, or the maybe the funny film where this one was not quite so funny. Uh, but yeah, Absolutely. I think I think they should. I think people should take this as a a sign that the American public will not just watch a stupid film because you throw a big star in it. We do have some semblance of <laughs> self-respect. <laughs> Terminators notwithstanding. Terminators. <laughs> Now, I will say there are a number of movies that fell into my middle of the pack. Some I saw, some I didn't, like Angels and Demons, The Proposal, oh, Public yeah. Enemies with Johnny Depp was not bad, uh, Perfect Getaway, which you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Those were all movies that some of I saw, some I didn't. A lot of them I actually pretty much enjoyed for the most part. Um, you know, not enough to make to my top five or my, my big misses of the summer, but I wanted to make sure I at least mentioned them as summer movies uh, that, that – were out. I think Public Enemies and Perfect Getaway are probably two that I would most uh, be remiss if I did not mention as being movies I enjoyed watching. But any big misses for you guys or anything in the middle you want to at least give lip service to for our summer finale? Uh, Scott, what about you? Well, I don't know if there was anything that, you know, I think more so than anyone else, I fully, I fully not only did not have low expectations going into Transformers 2. I mean, I don't know. I think I, like, you know, ablated the part of my brain that contains not only expectations, but, like, the ability to be offended or insulted before going into that film. What, the ability and still ended up being offended and insulted. <laughs> reading? We don't do no reading. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, I'm not sure there. I can say there was anything that was, like, a massive myth for me. Um you know, really for me, this summer was characterized by like the big sip, like the Hurt Locker, which was spectacular. And I mean, on some level, if you want to talk about the worst movie that we enjoyed, for me, that would have been G.I. Joe, which just was so spectacularly over the top and in a uh, campy sort of way that I thoroughly enjoyed the whole film. It was, it, was a, it was a good, bad movie. And that's, I mean, there's an art in making a good, bad movie. And G.I. Joe nailed it, so. <laughs> Cool. How about you, Des? Well, I would definitely say uh, I I would agree probably down the board with the uh, biggest misses. I would actually say I was I had more hope for Transformers two than probably any of you guys did. I I kind of liked the original Transformers. I thought it was pretty fun. I was hoping this one would be interesting at least, or at least have some you know cool moments in it. But man, did it soar so far below my expectations. I was 
I was pretty bummed, uh, which is maybe why I tried to stick up for it a little bit in our podcast review. <laughs> but uh, no, I, I agree. That was that was a huge miss for me. Uh, Harry Potter was a huge miss for me, especially because everyone everyone seemed to think this was was an amazing film. You know, reading the reviews up to it, those huge huge expectations, the best Potter film yet. And I I don't know what it is. And I've talked to many people since we've reviewed this, and apparently everyone else in the world thought was, this was the best Harry Potter film that you could make. And I I thought it was just boring. I I was checking my watch during this film. <laughs> I mean, I was checking my cell phone because <laughs> I don't have a watch. <laughs> and annoying the people in the theater. Yes, uh, and and the people next to me were 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 checking their their <laughs> cell phones. So I mean, I didn't, I don't, I don't know what the deal is. I felt like I had the the sort of the tone of the people inside the theater when I was watching this film, and I felt like everyone was like was like barely chuckling at the jokes, was silent. People were quick to get up and out of the theater when this movie was over. No one clapping and cheering. I thought it was a boring and a pretty subpar Potter film. I'd say the worst of the Potter films thus far. Uh, but, I don't know. Sometimes you have to bow to the fact that other people seem to like it, I guess. I don't know. So that was a disappointment for me. Transformers. That was a disappointment for me. I, I tend to like the Harry Potter films. I like. I was a huge fan of the books. Uh, what can I say? So that was a big miss for me. Uh yeah, that's. I think that's about all I can mention in that category. So yeah, Public Enemies didn't make. I mean, we all saw that. That didn't make anybody's top six. Yeah, I mean, I I like Public Enemies to some degree, though. I think you know, after having a good, a good debate, maybe I didn't like it quite so much coming out the end. Because I think I agree with some of your guys' criticisms of it. Uh, it was a good film, but it's not a film that I would rush out to see again or even necessarily buy or rent on DVD when it came out. So cool. I think if I was paid $1 to watch it on Netflix Instant Watch, I wouldn't. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'd probably be there about the same. Wow. I think overall, not the best summer of movies, if I had to put my own just sort of stamp on it. I, yeah. enjoy, I mean, obviously I enjoyed my top five, but I come out of the summer for, you know, the 190 plus movies that made up the summer and the, the much smaller subset of blockbusters. There are a number here I really enjoyed, and there are probably two or three I'll end up buying or watching again regularly, but um, maybe not the best summer 2009, and maybe I'm, I have a little bit more expectations for the the fall movies and the fall TV to make up for it. You know, I think I, I agree with you. And if you look at, uh, you know, my top five list, at least three of them are micro-budget independent films. And I think that says something about the, you know, the summer blockbuster industry. There was a lot of misses, a lot of stinkers in the the blockbuster category this year. And so, uh, it, but I, I think it was a, a great summer for independent film. But again, it's really hard to get into the independent film arena unless you're looking for it. So I think mean, it's unfortunate for the the movie watching public in general that uh, the best films I think came from uh, the independent cinema. But yeah, awesome. Yeah, overall, a bit of a a bit of a miss maybe on the summer. Not quite the Iron Man, Dark Knight summer, but. But uh, definitely some good stuff out there, and uh, I think we can all agree that you should definitely go check out our top five. Uh, and Scott, you should definitely watch everything in your top five. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I think that's going to wrap it up for this podcast. Going a bit long, but a great discussion. It's you know it's fun to reflect on 
all the amazing stuff that went down during the summer. And, you know, it's hard to believe that the summer is already over and we have the fall looming ahead. And as I said, there will be much crawling under the covers and weeping for these dramatic uh, Oscar bait films. And we'll be we'll be happy to to cry before you guys have to watch it and let you know whether it was worth it. Uh, but yeah, thanks again for joining us at Weekly Monotony. And of course, always come back to DailyMonotony.com. Especially this upcoming week, I will be attending the Penny Arcade Expo here in Seattle starting this Friday. Expect to see a lot of coverage coming out. I'll have pictures, hopefully some video, and lots of Twittering and story writing as I get to finally get my hands on all those games I wanted to play at E3, and now I get the chance to. So come back, check that out. As always, come back to DailyMonotony.com. It's an awesome site. <laughs> These are my personal <laughs> opinion. Uh, nice. Yeah, and that's that, I think, does it. And in case you're wondering, the quote was from Men in Black. You were looking for Men in Black. That's Weekly Monotony. And listen next week, or we'll shoot you where you don't grow back. Hopefully people that made it this far uh, can can send their own top five of the summer. I'd love to see other people's top fives and see where our lists line up against everybody else. So if you have your own top five, find a place on Daily Monotony to, to leave your top five in comments or send it in, and we'd love to compare our lists. And if your list is unique enough, maybe Dustin will even just post it to the web. Uh, just perhaps. I do have the power. <laughs> <laughs> he is the webmaster. master.